Next up on Power to the Patient. Like I had not a single moment in my adult life that I could point to and say that was an unmedicated moment and this is who I am without these drugs. I had no frame of reference for that. Welcome to Power to the Patient. I'm your host, Dr. Lily Rosenthal. Please join us as we invite real people of all ages and backgrounds to share their personal stories of success, when and how they made it their priority to pivot towards better health. Let's welcome today's inspiring hero of health. Welcome everybody to this episode of Power to the Patient, where we have an extremely engaging, interesting, kind of right on target guest of somebody who really did an unbelievable job of taking agency in her health. And we're gonna hear her incredible story in just a couple of moments. So a big thank you to Brooke Seam for being with us today on Power to the Patient. And Brooke, we cannot wait to hear uh, your story, and we know that it'll have tremendous impact on um, our listeners and their families and their communities in so many positive ways. So thank you so much and welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's start as we do at the very beginning, because we want to have a little context, right? And we're going to sort of build upon, we're not going to, no, no spoiler alerts here. We're just going to start at the very beginning of tell us a little bit about uh, growing up, you know, so to speak, who was in charge of your health? Um, you know, you were a child, right? So we're assuming that you didn't take full responsibility for that. And what were some of the messages coming from your family, your community? Um, give us a little background, a little context, please. Sure. Um, I grew up in Reno, Nevada and kind of, you know, in an upper middle class family. Health wasn't really something we discussed it much at all just because there for a long time there really wasn't too many waves in our family about health and if there was it was you know grandfather getting old or something like that but you know I was born in 1986 so I was raised in the 90s it was a lot of lunchables and white bread sandwiches and you know my mom we have some diabetes in our families my mom you know checked my sugar and I would show up to school with one Oreo and the other kids would have four and I would feel upset about that but that's kind of where it ended um we didn't really start to have too much discussion about health really at all until my father passed away when I was 15. he had pancreatic cancer but we didn't know it was a very very late you know diagnosis and by the time he went into surgery he never came out of it and after that that's kind of when I think I started to understand a little bit more of the, you know, well, one, everybody dies. It's a lesson we all learned at some point. That was my, that was my introduction, but also I started to take a little bit more stock. Okay. Of like, what, what is health and how do we affect, how does that affect us throughout our lives? How do we make changes that affect us? And that question continues um, to this day. Sometimes I wonder if all the working out and vegetables I eat really matters. Oh, it does. But who knows? <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. Um, as a physician who is deeply committed to the good mental and physical health at all, um, please keep that up. <laughs> there was just, it, it's a, yeah, go ahead. I know, but then we have my great grandfather who lived till 106. Yeah. He drank a glass of wine and had a cigarette every day of his old adult life. Okay. And like, Sure, moderation, but still, that's a lot of cigarettes and glasses of wine. And like, you know, it's just, I, there's a lovely Irish um, 
there's a lovely Irish uh, fable or saying that's kind of like when you're born, you get a candle and when the candle goes out, like it just goes out. And so sometimes I think about that when I am like killing myself at the gym or when I'm eating yet another plate of steamed broccoli, it's kind of like, you know, it's one thing to, you know, eat a bunch of donuts and to never go for a walk, but like, is what I do every day, which is pretty extreme from like an athletic and nutrition standpoint, like really, what am I gaining here? And the thing is, you just don't know. Like if I'm the first person to live till 120 or 130 or whatever it is, I'll rescind everything I say. But I do think there's a little bit of a balance and it's taken me a few years to learn that. <laughs> well, balance I'm agreeing with, if I may, unsolicited <laughs> advice, but I'm going to jump in that we do have, We I think what we really all want is we know that people die, as you said, and unfortunately your father died, you know, when you were young at, at age 15, which is a, a, you know, a giant trauma in life. Um, but I think we, what we all want is sort of a long and healthy life, something we Quality. call health, health span, right? And then when we die, let it go sort of quick and late, yes. you know, so we have years to enjoy. So let me just, because, you know, I, the, you, you know, from a perspective of a physician, it is miserable <laughs> to not feel and function well, which you know from your own story, which we're going to yep. dive into, right? So there are things that we know without side effects, and I know that's a big thing, without side effects that can support our health. So just a little tip, don't suffer through broccoli if you hate it. There's cauliflower, I, I love there's broccoli. mushrooms, there's carrots. <laughs> so what I like to say, just a quick aside, and then we'll go into your story, is because you're, you're so beautiful and healthy and you've been through so much and you've overcome that. So, you know, eat the foods you love that love you back. And yeah. really donuts, with all due respect to your grandfather, donuts and bourbon or whatever he was drinking, wine or, you know, don't exactly love you back. But yes, social now and then, right? So as you say, a balance, but I would move the needle towards the fresh fruits and vegetable and get some exercise. If a marathon is not your thing, a walk in nature for an hour a day, is sufficient. So I'm just, there you go. I'm, I'm, you're not my patient, you know, now or yet, or, but I'm just going to offer that because you know, our health and health and happiness are very much related. So if we're, as you say, killing ourselves or, you know, um, you know, really uh, living, you know, in a state of, you know, conflict of, oh, I'm doing this and, you know, let that go and just really like enjoy like enjoy the life, but, but stick on the healthier side. So anyway, um, quick, quick aside. Um, so I would say broccoli and, and exercise matters. Maybe you need to tone it down if you're feeling burnt out, but that's okay. Well, then, I get, then I get bored, Nancy. So, you know. All right. Well, all right. There's, you know, many good things. There's a lot of good books I can recommend. <laughs> and you've written one. So which we're going to talk about as well. So um, so tell me, so your father passed away and you were young at, at age 15. Um, and there's obviously, you know, a, a reaction to that. And I'm sorry. And that's a, a rough thing at such a young age. Um, your response to that, um, you know, your, your sort of memories of that, which I'm sure was just awful and, and sort of, you know, and, and, you know, super, super sad and lost and grief. Um, but you went into the medical system. Yes, um, about that age for your reaction to your dad's death, or was there something prior to that? Or, yeah, well, I mean, the thing about being 15 and having something happen to you is that you know, all the adults around you, especially if that they're very caring, 
they kind of expect things to go a certain way that, you know, maybe that there's a lot of outward grief or grade slip or disinterest, you know, the classic signs of depression in teenagers, you know, all of that, but that's not really quite what happened to me. I, I actually have very little memory of that time. It pretty much just, it was pretty much just wiped out. Same with like the year before and after. So I don't really have any memory or connection to exactly how I felt that, that at that time. I don't remember feeling overwhelming sadness or grief. I, I think I was really more in shock and that was the kind of reaction that I had. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit of almost too much normalcy, I think that was going on. And that's what one of the reasons that led my mother to say, I guess we should go see a child psychologist. There are a few other things as well, but it wasn't, I mean, in retrospect, when I look at it, I don't think we were in a state of crisis by any means. But I think that, you know, I'm an only child. My mother, having just lost one third of her family, was worried. And it was also 2001, you know, we didn't have the availability to get on a Zoom call with someone on telehealth like right away. Or, you know, the internet was kind of, you know, barely alive at that point. So it was just a different time. We very much, you know, put all our faith in the one doctor in town and their opinion was the one that we went with. And so what happened was, is I got taken to a child psychologist and um, I met with this person for a few months. I severely disliked her for a variety of reasons. And I was a 15 year old. And after about two, three months, she called my mom and said, what Brooke needs is a as a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. I'm diagnosing a depressive and anxiety disorder, and I recommend medication. And you know, in a in a world of basically pre-internet, like who are you going to listen to? So my mom listened to her, and we ended up in a psychiatrist's office, and then that's when all the prescription medications began for psychiatric drugs. And you know, in retrospect, <laughs> what we should have done like get a second opinion but it was Reno Nevada in 2001 there was not the availability then and at that point we didn't have a reason to question the opinion it was only later that we look at it and say okay maybe this really wasn't the right call and what alerted you and when to like maybe we should rethink what was going on because you, you were on um and was it helping in any way like how did you feel on the medications so I was uh, initially, when I saw the child psychiatrist first, um, I can't remember what he put me on. I was on at least two to three drugs that had very severe, very obvious side effects right away. Like, you know, I was falling asleep in class or so nauseous I had to come home from school. Like they were so obvious that I didn't stay on them long and I don't remember what they were. But where we ended up, sorry, my dog's barking, um, where we ended up was on a combination of Effexor XR and Wellbutrin XL. Neither one of those um, created any really obvious side effects. Again, in retrospect, we think there were side effects, um, and I'll go into that in a second. But I don't remember feeling any better or worse. I just remember feeling completely neutral. So when we got on the Effexor and Wellbutrin, you know, I didn't have any immediate obvious side effects. There were about four physical symptoms that developed within the year after I was put on these drugs that I now think were related to those. My thyroid went a little funky. Um, I developed a gastro disorder. Um, those were the two big things and kind of just the timing makes sense. And there, those drugs do create those side effects. So it makes sense 
In retrospect, at the time, we thought they were, they were separate issues. Mm. But from an, from a, from like an efficacious standpoint, the, the antidepressants were not making a world of difference. I mean, I was kind of, I was kind of flattened out, I guess, but there was, there seemed to be no real positive or negative on them, but it just was recommended that I keep taking them because they weren't supposed to hurt me. And so that just kind of kept happening. The problem was I turned 18 about two years later and then it, the habit had been established. And so it was difficult for me at that point to see a reason to get off of them. And I was young and I, my whole identity had been formed around this idea that I had been told that there was something wrong with my brain and that I was depressed mm -hmm. and anxious. And so therefore, well, why wouldn't I take these pills that are for the thing that someone told me that was wrong with me when I was, you know, when I was 15, like, I think it's just quite insidious how that happened and how the, how, how my identity became wrapped around that in a very, very subtle, but significant way. Yeah, re really, so many things that you said there um, are, are so important, which is sort of, you know, when we, you know, um, may or may not have, you know, symptoms or mood change or, you know, we go right to the healthcare system, right, to kind of fix it for us. And unfortunately, you know, a, a lot of our healthcare system is kind of based on symptom management without a lot of root cause investigation. Well, it may have been obvious or, you know, it's sort of easy to say, unfortunately, your father passed away, right? And, you know, one person, look at the randomness of what happened, right? Going to a psychologist, seeing you, as you said, in retrospect, maybe a second opinion, but nobody was really asking the questions of what else could we do? What else could we change? What's really going on here? Um, and, you know, in, in so much of healthcare, including mental health, we have a pill for an ill kind of mentality. Right, like the the pill will fix it. Um, did anybody talk to you, or did you have counseling or anything, or they went sort of right for the medication? Like the psychologist sent you right to the psychiatrist. Well, I, I mean, I was with that child psychologist first for two to three months. I don't quite remember the timeline. Right. And, right. But like I said, she also broke her trust with me very early on. So you know, I was not being a cooperative patient either. But I was, again, I was 15 and I felt like I was being dragged into this experience that I didn't want, you know, right. and all, like, all I kind of felt like I wanted at the time was to be left alone and have some time. And like, my grades weren't, I wasn't failing. I wasn't getting in with the wrong crowd. Like, I wanted to be alone and I was exhibiting maybe some like mild eating disorder symptoms, but I was also a really serious ballet dancer. Like mm -hmm. not that that's a reason, but given the time and the place and the context, I think that I, I think that the holistic situation wasn't really looked at. It was very much, it was very much fear-based. Yeah. Which, which a lot of Medicare medical care is actually um, not really looking at you as a human with all your parts and, and, you know, you were 15 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you said a serious ballet. I treat a lot of dancers, actually. I was a ballet dancer as well. Um, and sort of the, you know, the food dance or the food athlete, you know, is another whole other conversation. Right. Um, but it sounds like you were very sort of high, well-functioning, uh, kind of normal, nobody's really normal, but right, um, you know, adolescent. And, you know, the sort of randomness of healthcare, you were put on 
antidepressants. And the more interesting part of the story is sort of when you kind of, you know, had an epiphany or an intuition or were sort of old enough to, you know, sort of question what was going on here and if you should continue on this path. So it sounds like nothing dramatic happened, you know, for or against, right, taking these medications. It was recommended as any you know, you know, our, our parents, you know, take care of us and this is what was available. We're not really thinking too deeply. You know, if you're not in the healthcare system and this is not your, you know, expertise, you kind of go along with a trusted expert, which is what most people do. I mean, 90% of people will do that. But you had something happens, right? You kind of thought, what, what was the aha moment? Because that's what we really want to know. When were you like, wait a second, like what? Can we do this differently? What, what what was going on for you and when was that? So it was 15 years later and I was uh, right around my 30th birthday mm -hmm. and my dad died when I was 15. And so turning 30, there was something about that period where I just had this realization that in my 30th year, I would have spent more time alive without him than I had with him. And there was something very salient in that feeling to me. And it just got me thinking about everything else. And I also realized, well, wait a second. I mean, I was medicated so quickly after my dad died that that also means that I, if I keep going down this path, I will have spent more than half of my life in my entire adult life on really powerful drugs. And I have, like, I had not a single moment in my adult life that I could point to and say that was an unmedicated moment and this is who I am without these drugs. I had no frame of reference for that. That was a really uh, disorienting feeling. And then it was coupled by the fact that at this point I was starting to have suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideations. And it wasn't anything dramatic. I mean, I guess, you know, I guess it could be dramatic, but it just felt normal. It came on slowly. It was just, you know, it was this feeling of not wanting to be alive. And then it kind of intensified, you know, for like the hows and the logistic, logistics of it all. But it wasn't like I woke up one day and I was having a psychotic break and threatening suicide and it was real, other people were involved. It was very slow. Um, and it just dawned on me that if the antidepressants were working as advertised, then I wouldn't be having these thoughts and I wouldn't not want to live. Like, it just didn't make any sense. The math didn't add up. So I pretty simple. Let me just say pretty simple, but incredibly powerful mm -hmm. and potentially life-saving to yeah. just connect those dots, right? Like, wait a second. This is a very simple concept, right? Yeah. I have patients all the time. I mostly treat pain. I'm not in the mental health field, yeah. but I'm a physiatrist, which sounds like psychiatrist but I'm very much sort of plugged into the mind-body connection because we have a lot of pain because of, you know, mental issue. It, it's all related. We're one human being, right? Medicine is human science. But to just have that awareness, right? That, that sort of light bulb go off, like, well, wait a second, I'm taking these medications because I'm not supposed to be here, right? With, with these thoughts, right? That's huge. So I'm sorry for, but, but, I'm, but that's, I just want our listeners to kind of, sit with that for a second that that's what these drugs these medications are supposed to be doing is keeping us literally sorry for the bad but like off the edge off the ledge off the you know keeping us in a safe place mm -hmm. and you didn't feel safe but it's almost scared you into a good place in a way maybe 
I wouldn't say I was really scared. I mean, I think at that point I, I had, you know, I had gone through puberty on these drugs and had spent so long on them that I, I had almost no emotion mm. one way or the other about flat. it. Like, flat. Very it flat, good. very disconnected. So there was no fear in that at all, as much as it was just like, huh, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and there was a, there was another, uh, you know, wrench in this situation too. And it, that's, I, it's at, right around the same time I was kind of realizing all of this. I got an opportunity to travel around the world for a year. And that completely came out of left field. It was nothing I'd planned on. It didn't fit into my life at all. But um, I was also having memory problems. And we were starting to hypothesize that it was connected to the long-term antidepressant use. It's the sort of thing where I would apparently, again, I don't remember, have a conversation with my business partner about something. And then I wouldn't do or execute whatever I had said I I was going to do. And then she would get frustrated and we'd have a fight. Now, had it just been the business partner thing, maybe I would have just, you know, written that off as we didn't get along very well. And he said, she said, but my mother was also reporting to me that she was telling me things and recently, and that I'd get on the phone and have no recollection of it. And there was no other real reason for this. Um, so I started to think, okay, well, if, you know, these are brain drugs, so perhaps they are having an effect on other parts of my brain. And um, I didn't want to take this opportunity to travel and then basically forget about it. And that I also didn't want to deal with the logistics of having to carry around a suitcase full of drugs. By that point, I was on six or seven of them. Wow. And like, I was going to places like Cambodia and Croatia. It wasn't like I was going to London and could really trust where I was going to get the drugs from. So I just kind of said, okay, well, you know, maybe now is the time, right? I mean, now's the time to see what my baseline is. At that point, I had about six months before I was supposed to leave. And so I figured that's plenty of time to get off the drugs, hang out without them for a while, see what we need to do. Maybe I needed a different drug. Maybe I didn't need any at all. Who knew, right? I didn't know, but I figured it would be plenty of time. Um, I was very wrong about all that. And <laughs> that's kind of what that's what my book is about may cause side effects is it's basically starts when I go to see the psychiatrist and she pulls me off effects or cold turkey because it was the lowest dose on the market so she couldn't no weaning it. there was no weaning no every other day no weaning, no weaning. wow no weaning okay, okay. Um, 15 her, years I think that was the original drug you're on 15 yeah. years of this drug no weaning pulled you off okay right. and the rationale which I think is important is that one this was 2016 um, I mean, we didn't even, the first systematic review of antidepressant withdrawal didn't even come out until 2015. So it was like relatively new uh, information at that point. And my psychiatrist clearly didn't know anything about it. Um, I was on 37.5 milligrams at the time, which is the lowest dose available on the market. So she, she said, well, I can't prescribe you a smaller dose, you can't get it from the pharmacy. So you're just going to have to go cold turkey and here's some Prozac to manage any withdrawal symptoms, but I think you'll be fine. Really bad advice. <laughs> really, really bad advice. Thankfully, we do know a little bit more about that now, but um, not enough because I get horror stories told me all the time that are effectively identical happening five, six years later. So I uh, so you, you had your why, your why was, I'm, I'm noticing that, you know, I had these suicidal ideations, which was not a scary moment and nothing, thank goodness happened, you know, 
Um, but then you were like, wait, I'm, I'm having some memory issues and I want to travel. I want to remember this gigantic international big trip, right? So you had your why. You had something that you wanted to change, right? This is ridiculous. I'm going to, you know, suitcases of medications. You, you realize that this may be an anchor rather than like a, you know, a lifesaver for you in any way, in, in some respects, right? So you went to a doctor, she told you to, to go off of that. Um, what happened to all the other, the six or seven other medications you were taking and, and what was your experience? So we started, she said, go off them one at a time, uh, start with the Effexor. And I went off that and like, you know, like she said, and pretty much just every, I mean, it's, it felt like every circuit in my body just broke or stopped working. I mean, everything from my visual, like my eyesight sharpened, it got better. My hearing really, really intensive, like got very, very sensitive. Everything started to sound incredibly intense. Um, even my taste changed, like what I like to eat changed and my skin got so sensitive. I couldn't wear clothes. Like then I had the psycho-emotional uh, side effects, including intrusive thoughts and um, just incredible bouts of rage. Like it just really sent me down to a place where I, I started to think, oh no, like I might actually be insane. But at the same time, I was having feelings of a little bit of curiosity or feeling artistic or um, just feeling a little bit more like me, like, like someone turned the lights on. And it was, it was hard to, it was very difficult because those moments lasted for maybe moments or minutes and then everything else, the rest of the time, it was just hell. But I went back to her about after about like a month late, I think it was for a month long follow-up and I didn't really tell her what was happening because I, I at that point really didn't trust her. But I knew that because I had been feeling these moments of, of feeling like myself for the first time, that I had to keep going down this path and I had to keep exploring what was there. Mm -hmm. So then I stopped taking the Wellbutrin. I don't remember feeling any, the, the Wellbutrin and the effects are of different half-lives. So the Wellbutrin is much longer. So there was not an immediate, uh, onset of withdrawal symptoms in the same way there was with the, um, with the effectsor. And so if there, that was just more gradual, if I felt anything, but I just kind of started pulling the drugs off one at a time. I, you know, and eventually I was, I ran into the drugs that were prescribed for physical ailments that were, again, I was put on when I was 15 and it was just the most fascinating thing because, you know, for example, I had been told that I had hypothyroidism and I was on two different medications of uh, Synthroid. And that was something like my grandfather has hypothyroidism. That was just one of those things I figured like, oh, this is just a genetic thing. I'll take this little synthetic uh, hormone for the rest of my life. It'll be fine. But then what happened is I, I, um, I developed something called nodular vasculitis, which is an inflammation of the blood cells. And this was a stress response. So my body was in so much stress from the withdrawal that it actually created basically an autoimmune condition. And we didn't know what it was for a while. And I was going to doctors. This was in the like month before I was leaving. It was chaos. And we were running a whole bunch of tests, trying to make sure there wasn't something like really going wrong. And out of curiosity, I just said, can you check my thyroid levels? Like what's going on there? And they did. And they said, everything's normal. And so for me, it was the strangest thing to have been under the assumption that this thyroid thing, which was this kind of innocuous physical ailment was going to just be there forever. And then to effectively reverse it in a 
context of everything else. And that's, I've never really forgotten that. I think it's really just an, an important, intriguing thing to remember when it comes to your own health, that your body changes and nothing is ever, ever really for sure. And what worked 10 years ago may not work now and vice versa. And that, that, not, that yeah. brilliant, brilliant and important because a lot of people really do think that your DNA is your destiny, as you've alluded to a couple of times, that we're sort of fixed, but the body is a pretty remarkable, amazing thing, and we're living tissue. So yeah. we're literally feeding ourselves, be it broccoli or donuts or medications that have side effects, we are literally getting into the expression of our DNA, the functioning of our cells. So we have tremendous capacity to make changes for the better or worse in our in our health and, and functional lives. So you're 100% right. Most people think, okay, well, I have back pain. I'm always gonna have back pain. I have a thyroid problem. I'm always gonna have thyroid. So, you know, having, to knowing that I always say it's good news for people who wanna take some responsibility and it's not good for some people who want no responsibility. Yeah. But we have about literally about, I'm just gonna throw it out there to, for you and, and our listeners, that 80% of how we age, feel, and function is due to our lifestyle choices and habits, mm -hmm. which again, I say is fantastic news. If you want to go your route, Brooke, which is taking responsibility for, yeah. for your health, mental and physical, or you know, outsourcing your health is never a good idea. Not that doctors are, are not well-intentioned, but our capacity is very limited. As I tell my patients, I can't make you healthy. I can digest the science. I can recommend things. And by the way, I don't know if you know anything about my practice. I'm a pain management doctor and I prescribe literally zero pain medications. You have an opioid crisis, right? I am literally prescribing, I know it may not be your favorite, but like broccoli and walks and lifestyle changes because yeah. pain, you know, mental and physical is and it's transient. It's not a fix. And I just want to sit on that point. You were on, you, you busted out of this idea, right? That like, wait a second, I had this label of a diagnosis. And by the way, dirty little secret for everybody, a diagnosis is kind of arbitrary in so many ways. We have labs, we have x-rays, we have DSM categories for mental health, but they're categories and not everybody fits in everything perfectly. And that's a real failing and a very reductionist way to be looking at both physical and mental health, right? We have a human being, right? With many influences and many things that can affect positive or positively or negative where our health is at. So I just wanted to sort of, you know, contribute that. Well, and I think as well, like there's, and this is where I think the patient is so important. And I get really frustrated when people are just like, well, I went to the doctor and they said this, so I, so I did this. And what I've learned is that the best, the best outcome is going to be with a team <laughs> because you know, your body more than your doctor, like you live with it every single day and have for your whole life. Your doctor sees you for 15 minutes if you're lucky. Right. So it's not that yeah. it's just like, you have to bring your work to the table as well, which is, you know, your life experience, you know, the honest way you choose to live your life. And then what I really think people miss a lot of the time is because, especially because we're in such a reactive society where when one you know thing goes wrong and then there's a consequence, we put those two things together. But when it comes to health, like there could be something that happened five years ago 
that is now just showing up now and no one is trained to think about the order of events and how they've happened. Right, cause, cause right? Coincidence doesn't mean causal. That's a, a way right. to say it, right? It well, could be a coincidence and it's also multifactorial. There are multifactorial influences. Yes. It's not always one thing, but please, yes. Yes, yes, so that, that of course, but what I mean a little bit more is like, the perfect example is how I ended up on the Synthroid drugs, right? Like. So I go on these, my dad dies. I go on these antidepressants within about six months, my hair is falling out and I'm like having these Charlie horses and like it all pointed to the hypothyroidism. But at that point, because it had been, and I had, I had one test, I had one test that showed a reduced thyroid out of like three, the other ones were normal. So instead of someone looking at that and saying, okay, well, you also just went on these other powerful drugs six months ago um they that could be a side effect we we no one including me including my mother who is the most like an angel put on this earth right like none of the three people on the team me my mother or the doctor looked at a choice that had been made six months ago because of the trauma that had happened nine months ago right Instead, right. all we saw was this one lab that said the, the thyroid was down on that day and that hour and then I was put on drugs that I stayed on for the next you know, decade and a half. And that happens all the time. Right. And like, I, my favorite word, one of my favorite words in the English language is iatrogenic, just because I think so many of our diagnoses and culture and, you know, the body come from too small, too small a view when we really need to zoom out. And so for me, you know, when I was able to start like healing myself, if you will, from the thyroidism and this bile reflux disease and the and the nodular vasculitis, like I just realized how, how much more connected and how, how, I mean, it sounds so pithy and cliche to say life lifestyle choices, because it's not just about going for a walk, but that was like, like physically finding a way to live a life that resonated with who I am is how my health started to improve. You were aligned. You were aligned yeah. with yourself. You weren't fighting yourself, exactly. which right. even energetically yeah. is not going to help. But I just want to define that word iatrogenic because it's a good one and not everybody knows what that is. Yes. <laughs> so iatrogenic means healthcare caused, right? Doctor yeah. caused, pharmaceutical caused, things, things that happen in the healthcare system with, let me just say, with not bad intentions. No, it's the, the number, people don't know this and it is shocking information. But the number three, and I'm going to say it a couple of times, maybe, or just emphatically, the number three cause of death in this country is due to medication or procedurally or doctor-induced errors. Now, this is not that, you know, doctors have bad intentions or the pharmaceutical companies are not trying to sort of help people. However, we need to think for ourselves, just as you did, and ask the questions, which would have been super helpful at 15, but nobody's at fault here. And thank goodness you sort of had a little bit of an awakening and you, your life is now organized around this, which is super important to share with other people. Asking the questions, hmm, is there anything I can do for myself or anything that I can do maybe non-pharmacologically that could help me be healthier? Is there anything I could do for my thyroid disease? Is there anything I could do for my low mood? Is there anything I can do without side effects? Because once again, iatrogenic, that word, the number three cause of death 
behind cancer and cardiovascular disease is healthcare cause. Now, not to everybody, you know, screaming, you know, listening to this, but it is a super important, and, and by the way, MedShadow, who produces this podcast with me, that is their number one mission, to educate people about the risks and benefits and side effects of medical treatment, including pharmaceuticals, including um, you know, surgeries, right? I have patients all the time, oh, my doctor said I need back surgery. They didn't even examine them. They didn't even take a look at their range of motion, some very basic things. They're signed up for surgery. And I feel like a hockey goalie often as a physician, saving people from unnecessary procedures when we could really follow our oath of first do no harm. And I wanna say something that I hope when your next book or maybe an interview, um, it should, healthcare is really a conversation between the patient and the, I, I, physicians have a body of knowledge and patients or people have knowledge of their bodies, just as you said. I like that because it kind of interweaves yes. and it really is a conversation to be had, not just a one-way kind of you know, power slide of I'm the doctor, I have all the answers because we are getting in a lot of trouble with mental health and physical health and we need to wake up, quite frankly, about, and this is why I have this podcast, honestly, we, to, to have people hear real stories of real people, well, now you're not a real person, now you're an author and everything else, and you've dedicated your life to it, but this is literally life-saving and certainly quality of life-saving information that, you know, needs a lot more attention, but Please, I had it just to find iatrogenic and then I went off. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, well, I, and also I think that like, you can definitely overcorrect too, right? I mean, there are so many people who will, you know, say Google says to their doctor. And then I, I, my point is, is just that I think it helps to also as the patient understand the position that a lot of doctors are in. I mean, look, if we're taking the, if we're taking the stance that most doctors are good and trying to do best for their patients, right? There's always going to be outliers and find a new doctor. Sure, sure. Not a bad person is your doctor, but like it, you know, if you've got a doctor in your life, talk to them about the crap they go through to do their job, right? Like if you understand how the insurance system works on their end or why, you know, I've got a couple of friends who are ER doctors and it just sounds like such a nightmare. Like, I think I have so much more compassion for the doctors who have compassion for me. And then we can work together as a team because I know what they're up against. I mean, I tried to get a really minor test done with my GP a couple of weeks ago. And she said, my system won't let me do it. I can't order this for you. And I don't know in town who can, like, that's not her fault. She wants to order it. She can't because some hospital group that she's affiliated with says she can't order this test because it's, I don't know, probably can't bill for it for insurance. Like, what does that mean? That means I have to figure out a way to get that test done for my. So I have to have the agency in understanding their system enough to drive the car. And then when I need an expert to come in and have, you know, an opinion or a thought on the particular part of the car that's going wrong, well, then you bring in your trusted team, but it's just not the same system. I'm sure as you know, as it was even like 15, 20 years ago, yeah. we did, and you have to know that as a patient. I, I care deeply about this. And thank you for giving a plug to doctors who care. Um, there is a system that we um, are, are really, it, it's really 
Um, unfortunately, and I'm just going to say it outright, it's really unfortunately profits over patients and not for the doctors who are greedy, but the way it's structured on the incentives for the business of healthcare, and it's a business and it's, it's, it's bankrupting our country, quite frankly, and we're not getting such good outcomes in mental and physical health. The incentives are misaligned. We'd be, we should be thinking upstream on taking care of people in a preventative way of doing some very simple cost-effective things rather than we, we look at television. I mean, you know, as I do, there's you know advertising for pharmaceuticals. There's also a way of thinking in our culture. This is a bigger conversation of wanting a quick, easy fix or instant gratification. But as you point out, this is not an easy fix, right? And it has side effects and consequences. So um, very compassionate of you to be thinking about your doctor. Although, you know, um, people, you know, are, are looking for expert advice, but we are both, I think, aligned in really um, trying to impact every person to ask the questions at least. How can I help myself? What can I do? you know, that doesn't have side effects. And when you need medical care, when you need medication, when you need a procedure, when you need surgery, thank goodness we have a very advanced healthcare system, but in the bread and butter day-to-day -day things that keep people healthy, we are really failing miserably and it's costing us too much money also. Mm -hmm. So we need to really rethink, um, I've written about this, I speak about this, and I agree with you 100%, we need to rethink the healthcare system and we need more than six minutes to talk to a patient to figure out, right? I think we really, as doctors, we wanna be curious to figure out root cause and causes, right? Because it's not only one. It wasn't just the untimely death of your father, right? You were going through adolescence, you were dancing, you know, you're a full person. These aren't bad things, but these are things that make up you and your unique situation. So having a personalized approach, right? A personalized and kind of root cause approach, I believe, and you can share with me your experience, is really the best way to take care of people as an N of one, you know, one person, yeah. not just what the data says, which is important and we need a body of literature and science, but the actual you know, human experience and conversation like we're having now in, in sort of uncovering some like a almost like a, a um, an investigator, right, to investigate the root causes. Right. And and I think that that just takes it, it takes a lot of self-awareness on the on the part of the patient or the individual to be aware of that and even to like know themselves well enough to ask the right questions. And I, I do think we're getting better. Um, I just think it's slow. I'm seeing some, I see changes in certain circles, but, you know, much like, you know, the antidepressant and withdrawal thing, like a lot of the stuff is never going away. Like we're not suddenly going to become a benevolent healthcare system that doesn't care about profit. So it's really, the onus is on the patient to figure out how to make it work. This is the name of our podcast, Brooke, Power to the Patient. This is, this is exactly, you're, you're the perfect person to be, you know, you understand that, right? And it's your own personal experience. I, I just have a, did you get to go on your trip? Did you go on your trip? And I did. did, yeah. Okay. So, so the book, like the, the book is really about the year that I spent in antidepressant withdrawal, about half of which was international. So it was described by someone as like, eat, pray, love meets kind of like a, like a depression recovery memoir. And I, I think that that was a pretty, pretty apt description because a lot of my, a lot of the learning and the healing happened abroad. So um, I, I do remember my memory has very much is returned. Um, 
I most of that period in my life when I was medicated is really, really fuzzy and flat and not so much there, but in the year since, and it's now been six years, it's much more robust and colorful memories. So I, I, we were onto something, we just didn't know it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, the book is ultimately, it's about healing and it's about hope. And I really hope that it can be one day, I really want to get in med, in medical schools. I think that this needs to be in medical schools for not just psychiatric residents, because with antidepressant withdrawal is a very important thing for OBGYNs who prescribe this stuff a lot of the time for um, postpartum. Yeah. And also emergency rooms, you know, if you're in a car accident and you didn't take your, you know, you're in the emergency room for 34 or 36 hours, like, and you missed a dose of effects or if you have a difficult time with that, like that could be creating some serious havoc, uh, with your actual physical recovery. And I've spoken with so many ER docs who are like, we didn't know that this was a thing, but now we're really careful when we find out that patients are on effects or in a few other ones as well. So it is just so many people are on these drugs now that to not really have any accounts of withdrawal or even a way for doctors to recognize what it looks like, I think is very scary because it means more people have to suffer. So I'm hoping that this book can really fill what I see as a big gap in our understanding of uh, psychiatric drug withdrawal. Yeah, um, for sure. And it's like a public service. I mean, this book is, is you know, has the potential to impact. That's one of our questions. I mean, a potential to impact readers, viewers, listeners to our podcast. Of, um, would you go a step further and say like, you know, better, I, I don't know if you feel like, you know, better if you never started those medications. I mean, I'm, I, I like to kind of push the envelope a little. I mean, what, what, what do you think? If you had a do-over, at age 15, with the knowledge you have now, the experience you have now, what, what would you be kind of doing or, or recommending? I mean, look, if I had a do-over 100%, you wouldn't have made this choice. And I mean, really, I was not in a position to make no at all. So, but if you talk to my mother and she had a do-over and she knows what she knows now, she also would not have made the same choice. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing where, especially given the time in the world, like she says the number one thing she would have done is get me to a different counselor or therapist. Like I clearly didn't have a strong relationship with the woman who eventually passed me on to a psychiatrist. And the right call was to find someone who I did connect with. Um, I don't really know at the time. I think, I mean, my poor mother, she was grieving as well. So no one really makes fully conscious decisions in that state. Um, but for, I'm not even sure there was another child psychologist in town at the time. So, you know, there were some limitations, but you know, what I think that I really needed was time and trauma for children is not convenient. <laughs> and I think that the parents, the teachers, you know, the after school counselors or whatever, everyone wants it to be convenient and easy for them. And they want the kid to just get back to normal as soon as possible. And, you know, but that's not necessarily what happens. And instead what we're doing is we're drugging kids up on these insane amount of drugs because effectively they're an inconvenience for us. And I think that's really, really got to change. And, you know, I'm, I'm also not a parent. I don't know what, I think there's so much fear and there's so much terrible news on this stuff and you just I think that a lot of parents think that what they're they are doing in this scenario is preventing a bigger problem but I think that that's a lack of education on what these drugs 
can do both on a both on a very obvious level, but also on a long-term level. And I'm an, an example is going to be that, you know, if I was medicated when I was 15, it basically it, it just really numbed me. I didn't have much ambition anymore. And so I spent the next 15 years pretty much just going through the motions of life. I didn't plan for a future. I didn't want a future. And so when I started to come off these drugs, like one of the most salient side effects of this is that I am not, I wasn't set up financially. I didn't spend my twenties thinking about my future because I didn't think I was going to be alive for it. Wow. So I didn't have an IRA. I didn't have any understanding of, you know, real, really savings or how to actually plan for a future. And so when I hit 30 and I got off these drugs and all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but I did the work and then I really wanted to live and I want a full life and I want a long life. I'm basically starting at nothing. And so just the cost, um, the, the cost of that on a very literal level yes. is huge. And that's not something we think about. But for me, that's been one of the most obvious reminders of this choice is that I felt like it robbed me of the ambition and the desire to have a future. And so therefore I never planned for one on a literal three-dimensional world level. And that that's, frustrates me. <laughs> no, that, that's a big deal. It's almost, it's losing 15 years in a way of not, as you said before, not connecting with yourself, not being yourself, not even knowing what your future and, and planning and having the energy. It was like you said, a veil. I just had a patient today who just got off of her, her medicate, you know, her psych medications with the help of a physician, which I've been, not me was talking, I see her for pain issues, but we always talk about it because I'm, my proudest moment is when I'm de-prescribing medication, yeah. saying, you know, you have pre-diabetes, you have diabetes, but if you went on a whole food plant-based diet, you can literally reverse diabetes in two weeks. If you, you know, an autoimmune, you don't have a fixed thyroid. Some people do, some people need medication. So I don't want to, as you say, you said before, you know, we, we don't want to sort of overcorrect, right? Yeah. But the questions I think should always be, do I absolutely need this? And like you said, people want to help their kids. There's a huge pediatric and adolescent mental health, you know, pre-COVID, now with COVID, you know, we're still in COVID, but now it's not an emergency anymore, right? But there is, we have a huge generation of medicated children. There was a giant article in the New York Times about this. Yeah. Um, it is not good. And there's going to be huge, there is already huge fallout. And these medications, many of them, a lot of people don't know this, were made, you know, sort of as a short-term yep. fix, a short-term help to sort of then do the things that would carry you into a healthy life. There's um, not a single long-term study on an, for any antidepressants, not one single long-term one. Can you say that again for our listeners, please, Brooke? There's, there's not a single long-term study that has been done on antidepressants. So we don't have any scientific research that tells us what happens to most people after they've been on these drugs for more than like two years. And most of the studies are done, you know, they're what, up to like 12 weeks or something like that. I, I may, and that is that is huge. I would say the majority of people, way over the majority of 50%, have no idea that this is true. Um, and talk about fear-based. I think we need to sort of shift the risk, you know, thinking of the risk of having a mental health issue versus the risk of being on long-term medication, right? Mm -hmm. For something that doesn't really work. I think the, 
you know, you can correct me because you're really sort of heavy into the data on this, is 20, 30%, you know, see a, a, a positive effect. 23% of people on psychiatric medication see a positive 15. effect. 15. 15, okay. 15 is the number that had, keeps coming up. I, I was being I was being generous. So yeah. the science that I know, so I guess that leads people like, okay, what do I do then? Like, what do I do? These drugs don't work. What the heck do I do? My training as a physician in sort of a lifestyle medicine approach, which I know sounds like blah, 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 so boring, but literally as our, our gut is our second brain, right? The foods we eat, the connections we have with people, right? Are sort of yeah. being engaged in purpose, um, going for a walk every day, nothing fancy. They don't have to be hardcore like you. Um, getting some good sleep. I mean, these are side effect free and actually have side effect profile to sort of get you tuned up because people need something, right? People need a swap out. It's not like, oh my God, like the rug pulled up. Like, oh my God, I can't take my psych meds anymore, which only... 15% actually work. That is a really, really, really yeah. low number. Who would ever dare go to surgery saying that we have a 15% chance of helping you? Not many people would. So yeah. that's something that really needs to get out there that, you know, the, the, the thinking about the risk, you know, the, the risk of these medications. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, the fascinating part about the, that number 15% is that like more people report that the drugs are helping them but it's placebo effect. So if you compare it against a sugar pill, it's, it's, you know, basically kind of a wash. So I think that's really interesting. And there's a big ethical question around that, which is, well, I mean, whether or not you think they're working or they actually are, who cares as long as they're working, which is like, okay, fine. Except for the fact that getting off these drugs is, is, <laughs> is really problematic yeah. and the side effects, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I find that to be a little bit of a thin argument. Um, but uh, it, it, it's an irresponsible argument and placebo actually comes with like, oh, that's a sham or those like that's yeah, no. negative connotations, the placebo effect of thinking, you know, eating your broccoli and thinking that you're healthy without really hating it is it, let's use that placebo effect. Yeah. Right? So yeah. taking agency of your health, taking care of yourself, right. Has a gigantic, like I can do this, right. The confidence in that we know literally changes our chemistry, changes our brain chemistry, yeah. right? So to give people agency to do things with positive side effects and not have to go through the awful withdrawal, which you went to, went through, um, and doing things, that's why we like to sort of, you know, I, I literally, prescribe, I have a, literally, I have a New York State prescription pad right here, hold on, and I literally write on it, fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, go for a walk. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous. I'm a doctor, right? But it's the most powerful and responsible thing that I can do. And I spend time with patients trying to figure out, you know, changing things in their life that will put them on a better path. Yeah. So you have done this as a non-medical person, but as a person who's been through the system and, you know, who really had a, a moment of, you know, deep connection, like, wait a second, I'm, I'm traveling. I want to remember this. You know, you, you took a moment to rethink. And if we could, as a society, really individually, but as a society, take a moment to sort of rethink, you know, how we're helping people and how we might be harming people, um, you know, we can sort of move mountains, like keep people healthy, like keep people away from things that um, they don't have to experience sort of in the negative, um, I think.
Yeah, I, I agree. And I, but I think, I mean, I, I run it, people from all walks of life, you know, reach out to me now because of this work and I hear so many different stories and the, the great commonality between everyone who reaches out to me and pretty much anyone I know who's ever healed is that you have to make some pretty big changes to affect big results. And very often it's more than, you know, just swapping, you know, a donut for broccoli. Of course that helps, but like so often, especially with these mental health stuff that in my opinion, like we're talking like, like you need to get a divorce. You need to move. You need to quit your job. Like you need to make such a radical choice because it's not aligning with who you are and it's not, you're clearly not happy that so many people are not equipped to do that and to make that choice in the fear of the fallout, which almost never happens in the way you think it is. And it's almost never as bad as you think it is going to be is what keeps people from making these choices. So my question for you was going to be, okay, well, what happens when someone comes to you and, you know, they eat their broccoli and they take their walks and they go swimming and they like make all the, make all the, I'm going to say their surface changes. I mean, it can be very hard for people to make those choices, but very often there comes a point when, well, like you got to get that divorce or whatever it's going to be. And for me, it was that I had to leave New York. I had to leave my business. Yeah. I had, I, and because of those two things, like I ended up leaving my dog, which was the most heartbreaking thing. She was in an amazing situation. So she was happy, but like, she was like, you know, my soul on the outside, but the only way that I was, would have been able to see the positive changes and to start healing the only time that happened was when I removed the tumors from my life. Right. Love that. Yes. And, yes. Yes. But it was huge. It was a radical uh, erasure and start over from the very beginning. And a lot of times I see people, even the ones who really, really, really think they want to change, they'll say to me, you know, I've done X, Y, Z, um, you know, my husband still beats me, but I'm, you know, doing X, Y, Z. And like, yeah. it's awful. And I know they're in a terrible situation and they're stuck and they don't know how to get out of it. But like so many of, so much of the time, there's some deep tumor in your life that has to go. And that's how we start healing. And I don't know how we train people to become more resilient and more, um, you know, give people more gumption to take that leap. I don't know the answer to that. I only did it because I was desperate and I had an opportunity. Had I not had that opportunity, I'd probably still be there. The opportunity to travel and then yes. sort of rethink things. Um, that was more of a pull, which, you know, gave you an opportunity to create a lane for yourself to rethink and actually do something. But you're hundred percent right. And thank you for saying that. And, you know, I, I do think broccoli and walks are important, but you're hundred percent right. If there is something that's, surface right if there's a deep as you say a tumor in your life of conflict and energetically you are you, you, that's why people have back pain we there's a mind-body connection right so yes the divorce the job change the change of location the brave difficult work of getting real with yourself and then jumping towards those choices as hard as it hard as it is it creates a lane it creates yeah. a lane of going forward. And, and then so the walks and the broccoli start working. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're in alignment with that. That's a hundred percent because otherwise the, you know, you, you're being, you're in quicksand, right? Yeah. You're, you're literally exhausting yourself yeah. when you're not removing. It's like, there's a, there's a cartoon that 
you know, there's a guy sort of mopping up the floor and he's like sweating and he's like working ferociously and he hasn't turned off the faucet because yep. of the flood, right? So the, again, the root cause, which can absolutely, the circumstance, and some things we can change. So, you know, but having agency, and this is what these conversations are all about, of having agency to make those choices for yourself. And some of it is going towards something and some of it is running away as soon as possible because that is not, and, and, and nobody has that knowing and nobody could tell you that from the outside. No. That's something that the inner work that people do is, you know, is necessary to do that. Um, and leaving relationships, leaving friendships even, you know, um, COVID's given us a, a, you know, big chance to kind of rethink some of those things, right? Because yeah. so much has happened. A lot of us have had a lot of, you know, uh, uh, we'll say downtime, maybe crazy time, you know, kids running around or whatever that is, um, to think about sort of, you know, what, what are priorities, what are values and what's important to me and how do I live accordingly? So being aligned with your values um, is something that's, um, you know, sort of necessary to be healthy in, in every way. Tell us, we're, we're just wrapping up. This has been just an incredible conversation. Um, and I know that's, it, please, two things, any new health goals for you and you, something about you're doing gymnastics or backflips or tell us about that. Oh, wait, sorry, what was the first question? You said any new health troubles? Health or goals, health goals, health sorry. Goals. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, not, not really. I So, I mean, when I, yeah, I, I just... I like to do backflips. And so I made a goal last year that I wanted to be able to do a standing backflip by the time I turned 36. And I, and I hit that goal a few months ahead of schedule. And I think what it, I think what that did for me is it just, I don't know. I think there was something about growing up in the time I grew up, I was having a conversation with a friend about this, where, you know, once you hit a certain age or whatnot, you just kind of expected you know, one day you were just going to be one of those people on the couch saying, well, you're young, you can do that. But when you get to be my age, you know, and I just, my big goal is to just never adopt that mentality. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to be doing backflips when I'm 70, but I also hope that, you know, I want to keep myself healthy and mobile enough to be able to do whatever I want, whatever that means. Like I get bored. So you know, I'll change eventually. But like, if I want to start like hiking when I'm 50, like in a pretty serious way, like I really hope I'm in the health to be able to do that, you know, and to, so I'm just trying to do everything I can to, um, to make that happen while also at the same time, trying not to get too attached to what my physical body can do, because, you know, as soon as you do that is when, you know, the universe comes around and says, maybe you need to learn a lesson about creating your identity around ability to do a backflip and you break your leg. Right. So <laughs> well, I, I just, I, I just hope to find, and I'm getting better, but to find even more like homeostasis and constant respect for what my body does and can do no matter what it looks like or, you know, what little health things happen and hopefully avoid the big stuff. I mean, who, who, who doesn't never want to have surgery, but who knows? <laughs> well, it sounds like you're on track and you're caring beautifully for your mental and your physical health and helping others get there as well. So mention your book again, please. Brooke Seam, um, you have it. May cause side effects. Yeah. May cause side effects, bright orange cover. It's hard to miss in a bookstore, but you should probably go if you find one. You should also probably take it out from wherever it is and generously put it on display in the front. Um, it's, it's a fun thing to do and I'd appreciate it. 
but yeah, it came out a couple weeks ago. Um, the audiobook should be out soon and yeah, may cause side effects available wherever books are sold. You can also get it through Indigo in Canada, through Foils and a few other retailers in the UK and Booktopia in Australia. Well, I, I'm certainly going to recommend it because as I say, I, I sort of mind body, I'm more sort of trained in the body side, but the, the mind body connection is huge. And there's so many people who are sort of unnecessarily uh, doing things that they could do much simpler and not have to go through some of the things that you went through. And it, it's brilliant um, to, you know, to, to hear your story and thank you for sharing. And it was really a pleasure to have you. So thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you. I'm your host, Dr. Lily Rosenthal, with a giant thank you to my partner and the amazing team at MedShadow. MedShadow is a nonprofit whose mission is committed to educating the public on science-based options for making the best healthcare decisions for ourselves and our families. Perhaps you or someone you know have a success story to share. Have you avoided surgery or medication by adopting a healthier lifestyle? Have you beat or reversed a chronic disease by changing the way you eat, sleep, or move? Have you lost weight and got healthier? We would love to hear from you. Please email us at powertothepatientpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, be well and stay healthy.